My name is Sadio. And I'm Umer. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. We want to give a shout out to our latest Patreon supporters, Lauren Ram and Sean, both of whom have graciously decided to become monthly supporters of the podcast. Yeah, a big thanks to Lauren and Sean and to the rest of our patrons. Or as they say in Brazil, muchas gracias. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. I'm just kidding. They speak Portuguese, not Spanish. Which means that they say obrigado. Or the men say obrigado and the women say obrigada. So if you too would like Omer to thank you in a foreign language, please go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and sign up as a patron. All right. So with that, should we cut to our interview with Haiza? Let's do it. Haiza Huas is a human rights lawyer and a PhD candidate in theory and philosophy of law at Rio de Janeiro State University in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Haiza. Hi, thank you for having me here. <laughs> so um, maybe we can start by asking you about COVID. So in the last week, Brazil crossed the 100,000 mark for deaths from COVID-19. It is one of the hardest hit countries in the world. In fact, the only country worse than Brazil is the US. How has your experience of the pandemic been on the ground? Yeah, actually has been very difficult. <laughs> it's difficult even to start, I guess, this conversation because before the COVID, things were already a little bit hard. Uh, I mean, many, many of working class neighborhoods didn't have water, like running water, heating real, you know, before COVID. So we had a lot of unemployment. We had, yeah, historically, we actually have a, a high level of informal labor, uh, informal labor market. So a lot of workers depend of the day, the, the working day, you know, for having food in the table. So when COVID comes, a lot of people were with nothing. You know, no, no budget, no state support and, and lack of water, lack of sanitation. Many of favelas and peripheries here didn't have even sanitation. So, yeah, it was, it was hard since the first day. And Bolsonaro, our president, he completely denies the, the virus. And we are also in the middle of a political crisis. So um, we have this this big fight between the president and the Congress and the Supreme Court. And it's also a, a big struggle between a scientific-based discourse and a fake news-based discourse, you know, like the president. It's very much like Donald Trump in the sense that he put forward a discourse full of fake news about the virus, about everything, actually. <laughs> and and it's, it's really hard to inform the population and uh, to prevent the virus spread. So, yeah, the federal government actually offered an emergency emergency aid of money for uh, the working poor. But then the proposal was was a ridiculous amount of like 37 US dollars per month. And then the left, of course, fight within the Congress and, and could increase this amount for $112 like around $112 per month, but it's still very low since like the basic market basket is in Brazil today is like $868. So it's like eight times less than what a person needs to survive, you know? So, so and, and you're talking about um, a lot of fake news being spread. So in for the common people and for, you know, in your family and friends, is it uh, conspiracy theories quite rampant quite common right now about covid yeah i would say so it's strange like yeah a lot of people doesn't really believe the virus is there but at the same time we have this huge amount of of deaths and and people are being infected black and poor people are the highest like two, the infection rates could be like two times more uh, within the black people and poor neighborhoods so 
at the same time, those are the neighborhoods that people actually have to be out to work and in order to live. So I don't think it's fully like that people don't believe the virus, but it's a mixture of you need to keep surviving. So you need to keep, keep your life going and people don't have many options. Has there been a, anything in the way of a lockdown were workplaces shut down? Were restaurants and other gathering places, did those have any measures that were taken? What was that like? Yeah, for sure. Since the beginning, uh, actually, it was by state by state, you know. So in Rio, we have this very crazy situation that we have this governor uh, that, that was elected with Bolsonaro. Like, he was not a politician before. He was just elected because he uh, supported Bolsonaro in the last minute and he has a very strong public security policy against the poor, against black people in favela, etc. So he was very close of Bolsonaro. But then uh, when the pandemic starts, he starts to kind of disagree from Bolsonaro in what to do regarding the pandemic. So in Rio, we had since the beginning this more strict lockdown than other states. But then it was crazy because then start a political crisis between he and the federal government. And he was actually charged with crimes of corruption regarding the pandemic because he bought a lot of um, mechanical ventilators that never arrived and he he made hospitals that never were ready and actually bolsonaro put the federal police against him you know so now he's he's being prosecuted and more and more like with this political crisis more and more the policies were being i don't know relaxing and opening and now it's kind of like everything is already opening but with without a plan so we, we were for months, like two or three months, like more isolated with like stores closed, restaurants closed, etc. But then suddenly things were open and then depends of each mayor, each city. So the mayors are opening, but without uh, a very clear plan. So until now, we don't have schools open, but we have this fight that people pressuring for opening because people are already working. So how to do with the kids at home, etc. But there is no public plan for nothing. And I think these are those moments that the, the virus really gets like more and more spread. From the beginning, we have this, um, this situation that poor people doesn't have the right to social isolated to social isolation because they need to work and to and to to make a living and also because we have in Rio specifically a public security policy where during the social isolation decree we had like 40 almost 43 percent more uh, police operations in favela so more shootings more people being killed inside home <laughs> so it was a situation that for poor black and, fa and favelas people was impossible to stay at home but then uh, the middle classes has the privilege or the right of, of being at home but then when when everything starts to be relaxed uh i think now it's like it's very uneven and combined you know like uh i mean i have been in isolation until today but I'm, I'm also pregnant and I'm also trying to be at home. But then like a lot of friends of mine and my family members that never could be like this from the beginning or some of them could in the beginning and then could, could not anymore because their their jobs are, are back. So it's not, yeah, we don't have a plan. And just today, the mayor of Rio just, <laughs> he said that uh, he will open beaches, but then he, he will create an app, uh, a smartphone app, so people could book a place in the beach. And it's a kind of privatization process of public space that like, it's a crazy project that will never work, but then it's something that they want to do for a long time, you know, in order of, Put, put poor people out of the rich areas of the city. So 
like this kind of project, he will pay an enterprise owner to do this and etc. while we don't have plans for schools or for basic services. That sounds ridiculous. Um, what what is the healthcare situation like in Rio? I guess or in Brazil, like are COVID testing is that covered publicly? Is anyone able to go get it for free? Yeah, no, we don't have tests. Like we don't have mass tests. Uh, we actually don't know uh, how how much people we really have infected. Uh, São Paulo is started last month, I guess, to mass test people. But it was an experiment, and they they found conclusions like in, from the beginning of the testings that they have like a million and a half infected people in Sao Paulo. That is much more of the official statistics. Like for the official statistics, we have three million in the country, in the whole country. So only in Sao Paulo, one million and a half. It's like so much. And then the other states in in Rio included, we don't have tests and we have like tests for public um, health agents or doctors, nurses, people who are in the front line. Yeah, they of course have access to testing and people who, who get sick and then it tests, they are yet yes tested. But normal people, you know, the whole population mass test doesn't exist. And the, the public situation is, yeah, I, It was already bad before because on the funded and precarization and austerity policies, we have this law passed in 2016 that froze the public spender with public health and social services for 20 years. What? So ahead, yeah. <laughs> so it's like a public, um, we call, it's a, a constitutional amendment uh, that we call this kind of ceiling um I don't know. I don't know the translation. Sorry, but it's, we call pack of teto de gastos. It's like when you put a ceiling in the how much the state can spend right. uh, in those areas, and it, it was frozen for 20 years. So uh, <laughs> completely, like in reality, is the completely I don't know dismantlement of public health and and public services. So. The situation was already bad. And then now with pandemic, uh, of course, public hospitals were very crowded and it was a very bad situation. But actually, people also start to, to go for it, you know, like they stop to go for it because people were afraid of going to hospitals at the same time. So we had a lot of people dying at home and this kind of scenario that... We don't actually know how many deaths and how many infected people we really, really have. Like the um, estimations or the people, yeah, estimations. It's like that we have 10 times more or, or something like this. So, yeah, <laughs> crazy. So you were saying that this um, ridiculous, horrible ceiling on uh public funding was put in place in 2016. So at that point, it was still um, a left-wing government that was in power. Is that right? It was right before, like, right after the institutional coup that took took out Dilma. So it was under the, the government of Michel Temer, who was the um, vice president of Dilma. And he assumes in her place. Yeah, it was during him. But it was something that the the bourgeoisie was pressuring for a long time, actually. One of the things, you know, that I think led to the institutional coup and, and etc. But we can talk this later, right? <laughs> uh, one of the things you said is that there's now uh, a political dispute between the local governor where you are in Rio and the federal government and the way that this dispute is being played out is that the federal government is charging the governor with corruption. Uh, this seems to be a, a common theme in Brazilian politics. It's like charging your political opponents with, you know, slapping them with uh, corruption charges. And of course, this very famously played out uh, in the case of Lula, who was, who was charged with corruption. So um, I guess we can we can work to fit to, to talk a little bit about that but starting with like what is the 
the scope of parliamentary politics in Brazil? You know, what does it look like? How far left does it go? How far right does it go? And who's in control at the moment? And then we, maybe we can go back uh, to the history and, and to see how we got here or how you got here because uh, we're, we're not there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, this, the last elections was in 2018 for a mandate of four years. So 2019 until 2023. So these are, are the, the same uh, elections that elected Bolsonaro and, and reformulated Brazilian Congress. And it's a little bit crazy because Brazilian Congress now it's, it's a mixture of historical political forces that was always there and have been there for ages, like very conservative, mostly uh, linked to the agribusiness and landlords. So they... They have been there for ages, right? But now we have new conservative actors that were not there before this election. So we saw for the first time this big political renovation in the Congress. So we have like 513 deputies in the Congress. And from this, like a half, almost a half of these are new people that were never there, you know, not new congressmen and women. And uh, we can tell the same for the Senate, because the Senate, we have 54 senators and 40 of 54 are new politicians, you know, so or new generation that were elected for the first time. And the left maintained its, its proportion. So the left, like, okay, we elected new leftist uh, members, but the, the total number of the left seats maintained the same, right? The center lost seats for the right and the streaming right and the right rocket. You know, we have like much more parliamentarians from right and far right elected. So it's a very fragmented political party situation too. This is important to say because I think Brazil is one of the countries with most parties inside the Congress. We have 30 parties elected, like represented. So... <laughs> 30, 30 parties is a lot. Like we have 35, now probably 37 part, political parties in Brazil. And from this 37, 30 are there. So it's very fragmented. And the workers' parties still have the biggest representation per party, but they don't have like the, the biggest representation per alliances. I think it's, it's like this. And Sorry if my English is not very good on this because I never discussed this in English, actually. I just, <laughs> I just figured this out. No, but no, no, this is great. Yeah, so the Workers' Party has the biggest representation, followed by Bolsonaro, former party, that was, like, because he, 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 he was elected by this very small party, um, and then he, he now uh, split with the party, right? So he now has a, a new party, <laughs> like, I've already... A year after the election, he already has a new party. But then the party that elected him, it's very small and elected a lot of, of those new far-right members that was very linked with this discourse of public security that we need to kill poor uh, criminals, you know? Like, we, ne we need to go for the criminals, uh, put order and et cetera, et cetera, and clean the country from the communists and the reds and etc so a lot a lot of of those representatives far right representatives were elected with bolsonaro no, so if uh, for bolsonaro and the party that elected him and the party that he has now created or joined um they represent the far right forces of the political spectrum in brazil right now yeah and so um, is the workers party now representing are they would they be considered far left or are they considered kind of you know center left i think like i would say center left and maybe bolsonaro uh, would say left but i think everybody agreed that like far left is a very different stuff um, we have far left parties and they are not represented in the co in the in the congress we have like pessoal that is the socialist party that is kind of the left of it, of the workers party but and, and, and they are in the congress making a, a, a important uh, i think important role like the workers party it's very 
like we have to talk about the workers part in, in other like you know to develop this more because the way Lula and the workers party arrived to the government it was by a, a big national agreement with the national and international bourgeoisie so since they made this ag agreement it's like they never come back to their to the left you know like they always stayed in the center in the sense that they are always making new agreements and concessions to the financial capital so it's very difficult to say they they are the the far left and we can see this during pandemic like where the workers party is like in all those situation you know they are just waiting for the next elections like they're neither like calling for i don't know uh impeachment of bolsonaro or uh like a unified front against neo-fascism no they are like they, they are part of those movements but they are not leading those movements and they are not you know like um moving force of the the left in this sense anymore they are more waiting their time again to run the elections and win and then make the government you know so i would say just this like that far left we don't have like we can consider PSOL, some people can consider PSOL far left i i would say they're left they are very tied to this uh inclusion and diversity politics they're very tied to and and compromised uh to in the in the sense of i don't know if compromised is it's the the it's the word sorry but they are very committed maybe with with popular causes like lgbt people black people indigenous and, and yeah all those recognition uh causes i think the socialist party is the most committed uh, and and defend this politics but during the all this cause of pandemic, the party that uh, discussed in the Congress taxation for of, of big fortunes, for example, the party that proposed this, it was like social democratic party. It was not the socialist party. It was not the workers' party proposing, you know, like this kind of politics. I think they're not being done by those more like the, the leftist parties that we expected to do this. So industrial reconversion during pandemic, it was something that uh, came from the basis of the, those parties, not from the, the leaders, you know, like something that uh, social movements needs to put pressure. So uh, I, I don't know how well this book has been received in Brazil, but... Uh... A lot of people outside of Brazil have been reading Perry Anderson's Brazil Apart. And he has something in there that I think offers a good segue to, to talk about the Workers' Party. He says, Brazil is the only country in the world to have produced a new working class party of classical dimensions since the war. And of course, he's talking about the Workers' Party or the PT, which governed Brazil from 2003 uh, to 2016. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a bit about the history of the PT and uh, how it came to power? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I'm not sure if, if Perry Anderson's concept of a party of classical dimensions is fully applicable to, uh, to the Workers' Party because, of course, industrial workers played a very important role uh, in the foundation of the party and considering the context of increasing strikes and of industrial workers in Sao Paulo at the end of the 70s, which contributed to the end of military dictatorship as well. And it, it is from where Lula and other leaders began their militancy and, and arise, right? But those industrial workers uh, were all, have, have always been the like 20 or or like 25% of the working class what you know what i mean it's not like the majority of the working class and the pt itself was founded by many many social movements that were not considered the traditional working class by the left in the sense that they they have a lot of women's movement black movement landless movements and um catholic religious movements as liberation theology movement so it was a party that 
that was actually founded as a convergence of many leftist forces that were coming from a dictatorship and needing to build a democratic country, you know? So it, it was from the beginning a very heterogeneous uh, party with many different tendencies. So they have this all, all those diversity, all this diversity of social movements, but also the diversity of, of organizations, of internal organizations. We have like many socialist tendencies, Trotskyists, uh, Stalinists even, and, and like communist, different communist tendencies inside, and also tendencies more to the center as the tendency that Lula is part has ever been more to the center of the party than the far left inside the party. So I'm not sure, like, I'm not completely sure what Perry Anderson means by this uh, classical dimension of a, work, a working class party, but I, I, I don't see on the workers' party nothing classic. Actually, I think a lot of specificities, you know, like in the sense that it's, it's a very specific phenomenon in the country, I guess. And it's a phenomenon that it's like very contradictory from the beginning. So since the 90s, we have a lot of splits from the party. We have like far left tendencies being expelled. We have like far left other parties being founded during the 90s from ex-members of the Workers' Party. We have like a lot of disputes and, and democracy inside the party is kind of contested. So it's like... Not so. Uh, I, I I'm not sure if the Peggy Anderson's analysis translates everything we see on the ground when we are talking about the Workers Party. And of course, it's a huge phenomenon. Like it's a huge mass party from the beginning, but it's something that starts to deteriorating with time. And even the Socialist Party we saw today was a split of this Workers Party. In, in, and it was a split that, that already happened after Lula's election. It was in 2004. But we have splits that happened before. So, yeah. So what was it? Uh, so uh, the Workers' Party had contested elections for a while before they finally got to government. Yeah. And so what was it about um, the 2002 election that finally led them to come to power? Yeah, this is a, a very good question, actually. I think that despite of this heterogeneity and um, the dispute of political agendas inside the party, in 2002, before the elections, right before the elections, Lula uh, published a letter we call letter, like, letter to the Brazilian people. It was the letter he, he published. And it was a letter that it's a, a, a very important landmark on Brazilian po politics because in this letter, he makes agreement with, with the bourgeoisie, the national, international bourgeoisie. And he says, like explicitly, he says that he's proposing a national pact that he's signalizing in this letter that if, if he would be elected, he would respect the international agreements that were on track. So he will maintain Brazilian dependent, capitalist dependent position. He would uh, maintain the current status quo. He, his reforms will not threat the big capital. So I, I think this is a, a very important mark and this makes him he, he winner, you know, in the sense that all fractions of, of different fractions of bourgeoisie, but also different fractions of, of the working class kind of agreed that we could bet in this, you know, new government and everybody would be covered in the sense that he would do some things for the working class, but at the same time not not transform Brazil in a socialist country, you know? Anyway, and this, this was the big fear, I guess, from the elites and the bourgeoisie at the time. And so, it, and this was something that made Lula lo lose the election so many times. So it, it's very funny because my generation, like I have 27 years, so my generation is the, is the generation of Lula governments, you know. But we, if you see the the like his face in the other elections, in his face in 2002 election, like he cut his hair, you know, like he he made his beard, he puts a, a suit, you know, like this kind of. It's a total kind of transformation of those of, of this candidate that before it was only 
a leftist and a political unionist leader, and then he became he became a viable politician, and and it was what he has done uh, during his government. You know, like all the uh, public policies for the working class were tied directly tied to financial capital. Uh, he put forward a project of financialization of Brazilian society, but also of militarization of Brazilian society. But it's very controversial, but and contradictory. But so, what do you mean by the medicalization of Brazilian society? Mil militarization. Militarization. Sorry. Yeah, militarization. What does what does it mean? Yeah. What would what did that look like? How did that change? Yeah. From so, before. Yeah, this this is a very important aspect that generally is ignored by by the left and and the comment commentaristes because it's something that that's more has more to do with black lives and favelas lives, right? But it's something that like in 2007, so we are talking about like the middle I think of 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 Lula era, right? We have the Pan Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro for the first time, and at that time, we had this problem with uh, that that the elites considered the big problem of public security, right? Like how to deal with black masses, how to deal with the masses of poor people that we have in this country. This is has been historically a problem for the elites, right? And what what Lula has done with governors and mayors that were aligned with him uh, in Rio, we had this alliance in all levels of administration, right, at the time. And they, they start to, like, to put forward a project of militarization of public spaces in favelas and peripheries. So we had the first projects of putting the army in favelas. Um, we have these unities, they call, it's a project, they call units of, of pacifier police, or peacekeeping police that are actually like military bases that military police created in favelas and, and poor communities that like imposes a, a completely different um, mechanisms of, of life of life in those communities. So if, if you, you were a favela resident and you want to do a party or a barbecue on the Sunday, you, you need to, to ask the police for permission. Like this happened, you know, in, in Lula's era, and this this never happens in middle class neighborhoods. So this kind of politics and really a big investment in the military prison complex. So we have this like Brazil reached uh, the thirty uh, position in in prisoner population in the world. We just lose for United States and China, and this was like fruit from. From Workers' Party era, it was not. It's not Bolsonaro, you know, that that arrived a year ago. Like it's a a project for 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 many years, and for us that uh, we are activists from from favelas and peripheries, it, this is a very important part of our activism because uh, black people extrajudicial executions or murders by the police rose. In a, in a way that it's completely like absurd, right? So in 2014, Dilma put the military again in, 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 in favelas. Like in, when I say the military, so when they put the army in, the, in a favela, it's like they put military tanks inside the favela, you know? Like we had this. If you put like Favela da Maré on Google 2014, you can see like a lot of military tanks in small streets, you know, <laughs> like this kind of military apparatus was was very intensive, and yeah, we we, we reached rates like of uh, one black people, one black person killed each twenty three minutes, so it's like very high. And during the pandemic, it was very high, like in Rio also. So this kind of policy was put forward during during Lula's government while he was putting forward also social projects like Bolsa Familia and these kind of, of cash transfers programs that also are, are, are programs that brings like very little to the working class as a class. Of course, for individual makes the whole difference because you can double 
his income or her income, individual income. But when, when we say double individual income, we are talking about an income that was less than $2 a day and passed to be like three or $4 a day. So what does it really mean for the working class? You know, like you can pull off 30 million of people from extreme poverty and they're still poor and they still doesn't have access to reasonable standard and standard of living. So it's it's this kind of of administration of poverty <laughs> that Lula made. And and this is his big le legacy, I guess, uh, because before COVID, we, we, we had a situation that 67% of Brazilian families are in debt. Like, everybody's in debt. <laughs> like, you know, like, in, this, in, in being in debt, it's, like, also um, something that comes from this financialization. Because for the first time, the working class has access to the bank system. But you are included in the bank system and the consumer system through credit and you don't have an income to support the credit so more than a half of whole country's families have are in debt this is like a, a, i think a very a reflex of this these policies and and this scenario so uh Lula did get elected for a second term um in office and so um yeah. do you credit that to the social programs that uh, and that did win over poor people, and uh, was he also able to maintain the support of the bourgeoisie and the upper middle classes because of the militarization? So, what were some of the reasons that he, you know, at least for looking from here, it seemed like he was a champion of the poor? Yeah, but he was right. He was double like doubling the the income of, of individual families. Of course, he's, he was a champion. And not only, like, of course, the Workers' Party was responsible for the big extension of recognition politics we had in this country. So we have a lot of affirmative actions. So Black people went to university for the first time. And and it's really the first time. Like, my, my mother was the, the first Black woman in her in her university and when in the only one in her class when when brazilian population it's like more than a half of black people so when i went to university we had like 20 percent of black people there in in one classroom so of course makes totally different and and this never stopped it right until today we have much more black indigenous and poor people and inside university and this is a big change and also, like, the rights for uh, women and LGBT people, we see, like, of course, much, much more um, openness to those politics. And, and the politics of cash transfer made totally difference in, in extreme poverty rates. So if you have nothing and now you have, like, a feel, you, of course, are able to survive in the sense of, we could reduce hungry or famine, right? So reduce famine very much and put like Bolsa Familia's condition to also public health and education. So the children like to receive the benefit, the family receive the benefit, the children has to be in the school and, and has to be um, in this public health system and uh, have the vaccines and etc. But then like, Sorry, just let's just clarify what uh, Bolsa Familia is for some listeners who may not know. Yeah, sorry. Though, so Bolsa Familia is this big cash transfer program created by by the federal government under Lula administration, and uh, is considered it is considered like very successful in the sense that uh, Brazil achieved the objectives of of the UN objectives of the millennium in reducing extreme poverty for a health. So we actually reduce this, but then the, all the discussion is about what do we consider reducing extreme poverty? Because if we consider like the, the World Bank line that $2 a day, like if you receive less than $2 a day, you're considering on extreme poverty and you pass to receive three, 
like then you are out from extreme extreme poverty but concretely what does it mean you know like and, and what does it mean for a class so of course of course having more or the double having four dollars a day open a possibility of putting more food in the table of course this is important and this is like something very successful in this sense but at the same time for the for the federal government this is a very cheap program like it's something that costs to the government 0.4% of the gdp so it's nothing for for the 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 federal government uh, expenditure so of course we also could have more in the sense like we 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 could have a more bold cash transfer program for for instance and we we could have more programs in housing like brazil has a big gap on housing and and even the landless peasant movement main um reivindication that was agrarian reform it was stopped during lula government like he didn't made what he promised in the sense of agrarian reform so talking about the working class as a whole it's very difficult to to conceive the workers party government as a leftist government it's pretty much like a center left government in the sense that brings us much more recognition politics and much more conditionated and financialized uh social policies so so it's it's funny because one one thing that lula always says in all his speeches is that under his government the the worker could buy a present like b- buy a gift to their children in christmas and before this never was possible so under him you know like the worker could buy like the worker could have a television a laundry like you know like a laundry machine a car you know but then we could have of course all of these inside a favela house without public sanitation or or without the water running water going there or without or with a, a public security policy that actually kills your children <laughs> when they are at the streets and and in the pandemic we saw this policy also kills our children inside home so like it's very contradictory to analyze lula's legacy in this sense and i think those aspects of his government are not very often analyzed by political scientists and this is something that we really need to change here and and sorry you asked me about the second term and yeah of course lula was reelected and lula has all this very populist appeal in the sense like he's very uh, charismatic and very you know like close to the people that is something that is also important but when he was he was of course reelected because he also maintained the pact with the bourgeoisie from the first term to second term but this kind of police p- politics start to be eroded after 2008 crisis that reached brazil in 2013 because in 2008 brazil was able to be stable kind of stable with the crisis because of the commodities market because lula also deindustrialized the country so brazil again turns itself to be a kind of agrarian export exporter of like has having the main economic uh, activity in commodities and commodities production and trade so while the commodities market was in a good position the country was also in a good position but then when this started to fall down it was around 2013 or like a little bit before uh, the workers party politics also started to fall down because the then the bourgeoisie started to ask for more and more austerity politics for more neoliberal policies for even less to the poor and then they start to do this actually with Dilma and then we saw many many massive public demonstrations during Dilma first term and then when she was reelected in 2014 was for a very like little difference electoral difference 
and then all the history that everybody knows of the impeachment, etc. But it's important to look to 2013 as this mark of all the, the popular insatisfaction with the workers' party politics, because we have massive demonstrations that was highly repressed by the government. And all those demonstrations were against the increasing bus fare and train fare, uh, the, against the complete dismantling on public health and education. It was about like everything that was already going on and all this uh, public security situation that I was talking about was also present in the streets and in the complaints. So we had like a really important turning point in 2013. Okay, so there's a lot we covered there. Um, just to retrace a little bit. So the consent of the bourgeoisie that Lula sought and was able to gain, we saw this recently also in Mexico when uh, Lopez Obrador was uh, recently elected. You know, he met with important parts of the capitalist class and assured them that, don't worry, I'm not going to expropriate all your wealth. <laughs> That's not what this is about. And, you know, the media backed off and allowed him to, to start managing the country's affairs. So I guess that the same sort of thing was required in Brazil for the Workers' Party to, to establish control, uh, to even come to power. And then, as you've said, Lula oversaw the expansion in the consumption abilities of many poor people. The Brazilian economy, for the first time in, in many decades, saw a revival with the help, of course, of high commodity prices. And, and what was the, there's that famous line by Lula when, when there was a, that big, big oil discovery. He said, God is Brazilian. So yeah, in that time, of course, Brazilian capitalism is doing well. And as a result, there's a possibility there for some small amount of redistribution to uh, the lower classes. But then this, this project comes to uh, a stall when you know, the economy starts to stall itself. So then there's this limitation, I guess, that this, this center-left politics has, right? It can't break from capitalism. That's not what it wants to do. But the bourgeoisie is now rabid, right? Like the, these guys might as well be communists as far as the Brazilian right is concerned. And so uh, a coup took place. I mean, it wasn't a traditional coup. So, you know, it involved, as we've already hinted, this slapping of corruption charges against Lula specifically and the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff. I mean, I don't know how much detail we need to go into in that. I think this is a, a well-known story. But what are sort of the dimensions of it as it plays out uh, more broadly, right? Like, I mean, Lula still remains a very popular figure in Brazil, right? Whereas, you know, at the same time, uh, someone like uh, Bolsonaro, who's this rabid right-wing nutcase, is also very popular. So what's going on there? Yeah, I think it's like we can only understand how this kind of thing is possible if we understand Brazilian history, you know, like, and this is because Brazil is a very, very, very violent and racist and authoritarian country. And this sometimes, like, doesn't show up for the world because the, the way our racism was viewed was, like, through a, a myth of, of, of racial democracy. And so we have this in, in our history, right? So we have almost four hundred years of slavery, then two mil military dictatorships, and a history of, of democracy that it's very, I think it's, it's, it's very narrow in face of those authoritarian regimes. So I think the character of Brazilian working class, and I, I, I say this because my neighbors, friends, and family, it's like very contradictory. Like we can be at the same time very friendly and pretend that we have a, a democracy in all aspects of our lives, 
but at the same time be very violent and racist and and, and rateful. And, and so this this is also a reality. So the same guy that votes for Lula can vote for Bolsonaro. And this is like something that is can easily happen. But at the same time, I don't know, I, I don't like the kind of analysis that say said that, okay, Brazilian choose Bolsonaro. Because if we look to this election, we couldn't choose actually some someone. In Brazil, elections are mandatory, right? So everybody it's obligated to vote. And then in this last election, 20% of people didn't show up to vote. And this is like a new phenomenon in, in the sense that like if you don't vote, you lose some seats and rights and you have to justify. It's like something that gives you a, a little bit of work it's not like something that you can just do and and do nothing about it like you you need to justify why you didn't vote in order to yeah have your civil rights all there but then people that like 20% doesn't show up to vote and then then I, I think I, I don't have the numbers like in my mind now but I think like 10% or a little bit more voted uh, uh, in blank or no so didn't choose anyone. And then 44% vote for the PT, the Workers' Party candidate. So like Bolsonaro was not elected by the whole majority to start with. And then until the, the, the last second before the elections, Lula was the main candidate. Like he was the favorite in all pools. And then the justice system and the media made everything to maintain him uh, imprisoned and condemned, and all his persecution uh, was very unreasonable in the sense that they don't have really evidence that he committed crimes, like they say he's he, he had committed. And the justice system in Brazil is very slow, and Lula's process in charge was the, the faster phenomena we ever saw like no one was judged so fast and so you know like and all the procedures were so fast so like of course it was something that like the institutions made happen not something like it, it was not a spontaneous process so i think there is a whole political specific conjuncture that made bolsonaro be elected and at the same time, I don't think Bolsonaro is the candidate of the bourgeoisie. He, he is not. You know, he's a phenomenon that happened in the middle of the way. Because the, the, the candidates of the bourgeoisie was also very discredited by people. And if you see, like, the antecessors of Lula and the Workers' Party, they are completely done in Brazilian politics. They doesn't have, like, even in the Congress, they lost a lot of seats and space. So this kind of new far right was a phenomenon that grows so fast. And I think it grows so fast also because historically the working class is conservative, also because th there are a lot of racism and, and anti-LGBT thought and anti-misogynist like, thought that also elected, helped to elect those people. Also because the police in Brazil has a lot of, of public popular support and this kind of public security debate began the center of Brazilian politics. All electoral, polit uh, all electoral debates we have in the center this problem of public security. So the candidates are like, you know, they're it's mandatory for them to say what they, they will do with criminals, what they, and, and people like when they say they will kill them in, in shooting the head. That was how uh, Rio governor was elected. Public saying he would kill like any black kid that would be considered a criminal and etc. So I think, I think it's both. And this is important. Like people don't know, but, even the black movement in Brazil has roots in a very fascist movement in the 20s and, and 30s. So this kind of phenomena, like Brazil has had the, the biggest, I think it's the biggest or the second biggest 
Nazist party outside Europe during the, the 30s and the 40s. So it's like, it's a long history of far right, right? The far right is not there suddenly. It's there for like for a long time. And then the working class kind of live with these contradictions, like of being very oppressed and being very violent too, and sometimes very um, oppressor in the sense that doesn't they are not so much open to recognition politics, for example. So abortion is a crime. And it's still a crime, you know, like, and also there is another phenomena that people, some people don't pay attention, but that grows also with Lula and not because of Lula, but with this neoliberal environment that Lula proportionated to Brazil and also the, after Lula, that is the neo-Pentecostal movement, that is this new Christian movement, very conservative that it's a new thing to Brazil because Brazil is like majority of Catholic country. Um, and then we have Catholics and we have people like me that are from African uh, religions, like uh, African Brazilian religions. But now we have, with neoliberalism, we have this huge expansion of, of neo-Pentecostal churches that are very tied to the bourgeoisie and, and the very aristocratic fraction of, of national bourgeoisie. And they're very conservative, very conservative. And, and they were a very important support base for Bolsonaro election and for Bolsonaro politics. So they, they supported a whole agenda of, of creating fake news based on stupid facts, like the school are teaching our kids how to be gay. Like the schools are teaching the, the kids to be communists and hate the country and hate God. So this kind of, of, of fake news were very spread in the time of the elections and helped Bolsonaro be elected. And, and also Bolsonaro promised to liberate um, the carry of guns. That was something that was not, that Lula, uh, in 2003, Lula... Um, made a huge campaign against guns and etc. And the country, like Brazil is not an armed country as the US. But then Bolsonaro came back with all this imaginary that we, to be free as the US, like people are, we need to be armed. And then for, for, for the dominant classes and the elites in the rural areas, it's very important to have guns, of course, because they want to kill and expel indigenous people and rural movements and etc. So a whole support basis also came from there. So you asked me before about the, the Congress, and I, I forgot to mention that we can split the, the Congress today, and I think historically, but even more today, in three big informal cup Caucus. So we have the Bible Caucus, that is this new Neopentecostal, that it like a lot of parliamentaries came from this field, and they have they have like uh, radio stations, they have TV channels, they have like a lot of money, and a lot of in you know popular appeal, and it's a big support base for Bolsonaro or, or all kind of far right politics, and we have the the bullet caucuses that are people who are pro this public security militarized policy of killing black and the poor that are also very supportive of Bolsonaro. Many, many congressmen of his party were elected under this kind of discourse. And then we have the cattle, <laughs> you know, the agribusiness, the cattle caucuses. That is historical. That is since the slavery there and, and are very conservative landlords. And they kind of rule the country, right? These three big fractions, because they also represent the fractions of national bourgeoisie. If you see, like they own the properties, the enterprises and et cetera, et cetera. So it's this kind of politics that is there and is still there under Lula, but Lula was kind of negotiating with them right and and negotiated very well because we don't have agrarian reform we don't have like uh, our land land and uh, housing situation the properties social property relations are 
very much after Lula, very much consolidated in the sense that the working class doesn't have space or doesn't have property at all, right? So this kind of politics were very consolidated. But this caucus, this political situation was always there and, and it's stronger now, I guess. Over the last year, uh, one of the sort of themes of news that we would hear a lot was about the Amazon and Bolsonaro uh, with the support of the cattle ranchers and those kinds of upper class sort of groups was uh, actively aiding in uh, the destruction of habitat and of indigenous people's claims to the land. How is that received in Brazilian society? Is that something that people, uh, in the popular opinion, that's a good thing that we're getting rid of the Amazon? Yeah, this is a very difficult question too, I guess. It's it's a very important question because it's not only the left in uh, North America that cares about the Amazon. It's the only thing we know about. Everybody <laughs> in North America, if we think about Brazil, it's the Amazon. So, yeah. you know, this is this is the crucial question. I can imagine. <laughs> But, like, I mean, for the left, it's very important. Like, for me, for social movements, like, it's, ve it's a very important question because... It's not only about the forest that is like very important for how humanity lives, right? But it, but it's about the indigenous people's lives. There and the indigenous genocide. It's one of the cruelest thing that I think we can we could ever saw or imagine in Brazil. You know, because we have many many indigenous ethnicities and and. And we have the, the bigger concentration of isolated indigenous people in the world. And it's very cruel when we see those indigenous communities being completely killed, like because of invaders, because it's completely illegal. Like we already have all the legal system to protect Amazon, but it's not implemented because of political will. So, and, 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 and because of, of, of the bourgeoisie, of course, the agribusiness that always expand the ag agriculture frontier. And it's not only Amazon. We, we, we need to say the same situation that Amazon is living, it happens in the uh, center of Brazil where we have Cerrado, that it's another biome uh, very important, like for even for the Amazon forest exist because all the water system, the rivers and etc., are linked. So we have this, and the indigenous people are being killed there as well, in the same way that they are being killed in Amazon. So for the left, it's a very important one. For the landless peasant movement, it's very important to talk about all this because it has also to do with conflict over lands. There are also a very historical problem, huge problem in Brazil. So it, we have indigenous, landless peasants, and also traditional communities which we, we call like as quilombolas or maroon communities, right? Or like people that lives from the rivers and people that lives from the forest in different ways, and they are all threatened. We have the highest uh, rate of human rights defenders killed in Latin America, and mostly of them are human rights defenders of the land of, or the forest because of this kind of policy. But, but for average people, I would say that it's not a big concern. Like for a normal, you know, like uh, if you're not an activist, a militant, or have le a left consciousness, It's not something that you really care also because of racism, because people don't consider indigenous people humans, you know, like people consider indigenous people as animals. So, and people has a lot of, I don't know, a, a misjudgment about the animals at all. Like they don't, don't care if you kill. So this is a, a kind of, of, of very difficult situation, I guess. Uh, and also there is a, a common sense In the, in the countryside that is very different from Rio or Sao Paulo. I think in Rio or Sao Paulo, people are a little bit more consciousness about this, but also because their lives don't depend of these resources. But in the countryside, we have a very sharp uh, situation where people really want to fight and kill 
people who live from the forest because they want to expand their lands, they want to expand their property, they want to exploit like gold or mining, illegal. So illegal activities like these are very common. And Bolsonaro really openly puts people to go for it, you know, like openly he supports this kind of position. And that is totally different from Lula and Dilma that of course, publicly will never uh, say, okay, go for Amazon, go and loot everything. No, but then Bolsonaro is saying, it's like actually giving guns for those people to do this. It's actually saying, okay, now you can buy more guns legally and you can exploit. And he also is spreading this fake news that indigenous people want to exploit their land. And this is a, a really like big fake news and very cruel because of course one or two indigenous person can be in this position, but the position of the indigenous movement and the indigenous organizations and, and, and villages are the opposite. It's like they are trying to live and survive and they are being threatened by those illegal lodgers or illegal looters. And like sometimes they have no no chance but work for them as slaves almost, you know, like or as slaves really, because they are like being threatened to exploit their own lands that should be protected. And this is very exposed now with COVID because indigenous people are dying from COVID. But if you are from an isolated village, you shouldn't be contaminated. Like why you are contaminated? Because there are illegal uh, invaders there, invasors there that are bringing the virus to their villages and to the places that they are living because they are very isolated like sometimes. It's very bizarre the situation because now the, gen the indigenous genocide has another you know element that is COVID and there is no treatment there is not there are not hospitals there for indigenous people so i think their situation is the most dramatical situation or the most dramatic situation but i don't know if i answered the question <laughs> it's so much i just feel there is so much to say and so much like i don't know even how to express because we watch all of this and then like what can we do you know like in our life is kind of fragmented now in the sense that I, I don't think we are giving ans the answers that the, the juncture asks, you know, like the political juncture asks that we, we should be more organized and fight back those attacks. But also I think everybody feels so exhausted and so, I don't know. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. This episode is the fourth in a series of discussions we've hosted on life and politics in different places around the world. Yes, the other ones were episode 44 on life and politics in South Asia, episode 37 on South Africa, and episode 26, which was about Western Canada. Subscribers who haven't had a chance to listen to those might find them interesting. And of course, we have a decent-sized archive of episodes on lots of other subjects to listen to as well. Remember to head over to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast if you're interested in and able to support the podcast. A big muchas gracias and obrigada to all of our patrons and listeners. We'll see you again on September 1st. Bye.